This week we're going to look at sustaining grace. Sustaining grace is the power of God that keeps us going when we feel like giving up. Sustaining grace is the power of God that helps us do the right thing even when we don't feel like it. Sustaining grace is the power of God that enables us to endure hardship, heartache, and loss while keeping our focus firmly on God. There are examples after examples of sustaining grace throughout our Bible. The Bible is a real book of the real lives of real people. It's not a fantasy. It's not sugar-coated. It's not myths of super-believers who did everything right and never faced life's hardships. It would take too long to list all the real stories of the real people that faced their real troubles with their real faith in a real God. Some faced struggles head-on with their faith in God's sustaining grace and their great examples to follow. Some collapsed under the weight of their circumstances, but they returned to faith in God and God restored them through his forgiving grace. These stories give us the hope and assurance that we need of God's acceptance, of his forgiveness, and the promise that we serve a God of second chances. So let's take a moment this morning and just take a brief look at one of these great stories from the Bible, the story of Joseph. See, Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. He was the 11th son born to him, but the first one born from his beloved wife, Rachel. Genesis 37, if you want to turn, we'll be going through several places in Genesis. Genesis 37 uh, starts here the story um, of Joseph. So Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their fathers. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than, the other, than his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph was the beloved son, and he was proud of it. He tattled on his brothers, and I'm sure enjoyed wearing that distinguishing coat, that gift that his father gave him. Well, the passage goes on to describe that he has two dreams. And in both of those dreams, he is reigning over his family. Of course, he tells his whole family of, of his dreams, like most 17-year-olds would do. And his brothers respond with even more anger towards him. And his father even questions him. You get the idea that Joseph had an issue. He had a sense of superiority about him. Well, soon all of that would disappear. You see, his father sends him to check on his brothers and the flocks. They were at a distance from the home because they were looking for good pasture land for the flocks. They spotted Joseph as he was coming and they, they hatched a plan. They were going to kill him. They were going to throw him into a pit and they were going to tell their dad that a fierce animal had killed him. Reuben, the eldest son, stops them from killing him. But they still throw him into the pit. Then a caravan of traders happen to go by, and Judah has this idea. Let's sell Joseph into slavery to these 
traitors that are going by. So then they slaughtered a goat. They dipped his robe of many colors into this blood of the goat. Then they told their father Jacob that they had found this robe and that Joseph was torn to pieces by a fierce animal. Now many of us have crazy family stories to tell, some of which are very difficult and very sad. But none of us in here have had our brothers had to be stopped from killing us so that instead they could sell us into slavery. We all come from dysfunctional families because our parents were sinners. And by the way, we're all parenting dysfunctional families because we are all sinners. See, Joseph's life went from favored son, the coat of many colors, sold into slavery into Egypt, Abject, absolute poverty of nothing. A pretty hard turn of events. He might have acted a little arrogant, but this is a $10 billion fine for a parking lot ticket. He didn't deserve this. This isn't fair. Slavery in Egypt? How could his brothers do this to him? How could God let this happen? Did Joseph turn from God in the difficult circumstances of his life? No, he turned to God. We see that in Genesis chapter 39, starting there at verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of this Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his side and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessings of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. God was with Joseph in the midst of his slavery, in the midst of his trial, and Joseph was with God. God caused all that he did to succeed, even in his slavery, and blessings from God on him and blessings on those all around him. Probably after a relatively short period of time, maybe a a few years or so, God so blesses Joseph that he becomes the head slave, the steward of Potiphar's house. He goes from menial to manager, from lowly to second in command in Potiphar's house. Then when things are, are just getting better, Joseph gets falsely accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife. See, Potiphar's wife was pursuing Joseph over and over and over again. And he says to her, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph clearly had his focus and his priorities in the right place. It would be a terrible sin against Potiphar. But he knows that it would be even a greater wickedness sin against God. He might be a slave in Egypt, but his heart was committed to his Lord. Well, she keeps pursuing him day after day, and he keeps his integrity. Then one day she corners him. She gets him alone. 
She grabs his coat and Joseph flees and he leaves his garment in her hands. Then she falsely accuses Joseph of raping her and he gets sent to prison. Look at those verses in, in uh, Genesis 39, 19 and 20. It says, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. First sold into slavery by his own family. Then slowly, skillfully, with integrity, with God's blessings, moving up in authority. Only to have that all dashed by being falsely accused and convicted and thrown into prison. You know, there could hardly be a more worse place on planet Earth on that day than to be a foreigner and a slave in an Egyptian palace prison. No hope. No future. Why, God? You blessed me so much. You gave me favor with Potiphar. You made everything I do succeed. I did what was right. I kept my integrity because I know you're a holy God. What are you doing? Why even bless me if you're just going to take it all away and throw me into this prison? It's not fair. I'm sure some of these kind of thoughts went through Joseph's mind and heart. You know, but instead of dwelling on his loss, instead of dwelling on his misfortune, instead of dwelling on how unfair all this is, instead of looking around him and focusing on this terrible place that he's at, he chooses to believe God is still God and he can be trusted. He chooses in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of life to believe God over his doubts and fears, and grief. And God blesses him. After a long time of enduring hardship as a prisoner, and showing his faithfulness and his dedication and his skill to the keeper of the prison, Joseph is made the highest ranking prisoner at the prison. You could say he's second in command again over the prisoners. Genesis 39 concludes with this, But the Lord was with Joseph, and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God is using Joseph in amazing ways because even though Joseph is dealing with all these unforeseen and unfair circumstances, he's keeping his focus on God. Then when Pharaoh gets angry, he throws his chief cupbearer and his chief baker into prison. Joseph is put in charge of them. One day, here the, the cupbearer and the baker have this dream, a dream that's so real and so vivid and so challenging to them that they're seeking its meaning. Genesis 48 says, They said to him, We have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Get this now, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to the Lord? Please tell them to me. Joseph is so in tune with God, he is so focused on God, that he wants to be used by God wherever he is. You know, oftentimes, it is in our dark times, 
It is in our hard times. It is in our unfair times. And it is in our times of loss that we really find God, that we find the depth of God, that we find intimacy with God. We find sustaining grace of God. Joseph tells them what their dreams mean. The cupbearer will be restored to his position in three days. And the baker will be hanged in three days. And that's exactly what happened. He asked the cupbearer to mention him to Pharaoh, hoping that Pharaoh would get him out of this terrible place. But Genesis 40:23 says the cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Then, two years later, two more years, as Genesis 41.1 says, Pharaoh has a dream, and Pharaoh's men couldn't interpret it. Then finally the cupbearer remembers, remembers Joseph. Joseph comes and interprets Pharaoh's dream about seven years of plenty and seven years of want. So Pharaoh appoints Joseph to oversee the collection of the food in the years of the plenty so they'll have food to eat in the years of famine. As before, God was with Joseph and he became second in command again, this time of all of Egypt. Now, take a look at Genesis 41-46. Take a look at that verse. 41-46. This is what it says. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 30 years old. So remember now, he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. So that means it's been 13 years. 13 years of slavery and prison. 13 years of difficulties at levels that we could hardly even understand. 13 years of loneliness. 13 years of loss. 13 years of mistreatment, of cruelty, 13 years of some of the most deplorable conditions that anyone could imagine. 13 years of heartache and brokenness. And 13 years of drawing closer to God. 13 years of believing and seeing that God was his strength and his hope and his faith. 13 years of clinging to the sustaining grace of God. 13 years of experiencing the power of God that kept him going even when he felt like giving up. 13 years of living through the power of God that helped him do the right things even when he didn't feel like it. 13 years of depending on the power of God that enabled him to endure hardship and heartache and loss while keeping his focus firmly on his God. 13 years of desperately clinging to God's sustaining grace. See, Joseph's a great example to us of a person who held tight to his faith in the midst of great difficulties of his life. It didn't make all sense. He couldn't put it together. But he could trust God, knowing that it all made sense to him and that he could put it together with meaning and purpose. Beloved, each one of us have had and will have times when we need to hold tight to our faith in the midst of debilitating, difficult circumstances. We will need God's sustaining grace. We need God's sustaining grace to keep us going even when we feel like giving up. We need God's sustaining grace to keep us doing the right things even when we don't feel like it. We need God's sustaining grace so that we can endure hardship and heartache and loss while keeping our focus firmly 
planted on our Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at two specific areas of our lives that illustrated by Joseph's life where we need God's sustaining grace. The first area we are dealing with is trials. Joseph faced one trial after another, as we just illustrated before you, much of which was out of his control. Now, sometimes we certainly create our own trials through our own bad choices. And sometimes a trial just comes to us. We're suddenly sick. We have a financial loss. There's an unexpected death in the family. There's consequences of the difficult environment where we grew up. Well, James 1, verses 1 through 4, speak of God's sustaining grace in the midst of our trials. Listen as I read from James chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the major trial that the readers of James's letter were facing was persecution for their faith. James here, he's the, he's the half-brother of Jesus. After seeing the resurrected Jesus, he becomes a leader in Jerusalem of, of this new movement of God on planet Earth called the church. Then the Jewish religious leaders started persecuting these converts that proclaimed Jesus as their Lord and Messiah. And under this persecution that was in part led by Saul, who would later become the great apostle Paul, the believers in Jesus were scattered. They were driven from Jerusalem. They were dispersed throughout the land, forced to leave family and friends and jobs and home forced to leave all their normal securities of life, barely with anything they could carry. They're forced to face the uncertainty of food and money and shelter with persecution at any turn. So what's the first thing James tells them? Does he say, don't worry, God's going to take care of you. Does he say, I know it isn't fair, but just grin and bear it. No, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, really? Really? Count it all joy when you meet trials? I mean, count it joy to face persecution and fleeing for your life. Count it joy to know that the basic needs of your life, like food or shelter, will they be taken care of? Is James saying to look at your difficult circumstances of your life and just paint a smile on your face and pretend everything's happy, happy, happy? Or is James saying something much more significant, much deeper, much more powerful than that? Is he saying that we can have joy in the midst of our difficult circumstances because God will use those circumstances to draw us closer to him, to make us stronger, to make us more complete believers? The joy isn't the circumstance. The joy is in Christ who will take our life's challenges to use them to make us more like him. It's through the tiles, through the testing of our faith, that our faith is strengthened and we're made more complete. Jesus can bring joy to the worst that life can dish out at us because he can use those circumstances to increase and strengthen our faith. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, powerful verses. Listen. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus, our great example here. You see, the cross was not a joyful experience for Jesus. It was, it was physically horrific torture. Torture beyond compare. And even more than that, as the Lamb of God, as our propitiation, as our atoning sacrifice, Jesus bore all the sins of all of humankind for all time, bearing God's wrath and judgment for our sins on the cross. Jesus took the very punishment for our sins, fulfilling the holy requirements of God's justice so that we could be accepted and loved into God's family. Folks, that's the gospel. That's the good news. The joy for Jesus was not the cross, but what enduring the cross did, making eternal life available to all who would call upon him. Now that's joy. The joy in our lives is not in the difficult circumstance, but what God can bring about using those difficult circumstances of our lives. I've heard it said that for a farmer to make a straight first row, he has to pick out a stationary point in front of him, like a tree or a silo, and he focuses on that point. He's able to move in a straight line by focusing on that point. If he looks to the right, he drifts. If he looks to the left... He drifts. If he looks down, he drifts. His direction would be erratic and cause lots of problems. See, in the midst of the trials of our lives, we have to look at our stationary point, the rock that is higher than I. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He will sustain us with his grace through our trials. Are you in the midst of a trial? Look to Jesus, focus on him, and he will carry you through with his sustaining grace. And you will come through a better person and a better follower of Christ. That's what God said to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Listen to what he said. He said, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, the Apostle Paul says, about this, that it should leave me. But what did Jesus tell him? Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, For when I am weak, then I am strong. In our weakness and insults and hardships and persecution and calamities, in our difficult circumstances of our life, when things seem out of control, guess what Jesus is telling us? Guess what he's saying? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is resting upon you. See, often we outpray the Apostle Paul. We pray a lot more than three times for God to remove this hardship from us. 
But unfortunately, we often sometimes don't get the point that Paul learned through this trial. We never embrace the difficult circumstance as Paul does. We never look to God and say, I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ might receive the glory. I'll be content in the midst of my trial for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it is when we embrace our weaknesses that is sustaining grace and strength come flowing down. Well, perhaps today is your day to stop running from your hardship. Today is perhaps your day to stop running from your brokenness. Perhaps today is your day to stop just praying to get out of your trial. Perhaps today is your day to embrace your trial, to embrace your weakness and to realize that God is saying to you, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now let's look at the next area of our lives where we need God's sustaining grace. That's in the area of temptations. There's a difference between trials and temptations, right? Trials come from outside circumstances. Temptation come from inside enticements. They're closely related words and thoughts. Trials outside circumstances often lead us to temptations, inward enticements to sin. And giving into temptation, giving into those inward enticements to sin can often bring about great trials and difficulties of our outward circumstances. In our trials and moments of loss and circumstances full of hardship and difficulty, we will often find ourselves in the midst of temptation. God wants to use these adversities in our life to draw us closer to him. And Satan and this world system wants to use these adversities in our life to draw us away from God. 1 Peter 5 details for us. Uh, some of this truth, starting in verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's a famous verse. But what specific thought in, in this passage does Peter have in mind? Look at the next verse, at verse 9, so we can understand better how Peter was specifically applying this truth that Satan is trying to take us down. First Peter 5, 9, it says, Resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, the context of Satan's wanting to overwhelm us is in times of suffering. Satan's like that pack of wolves that take down a buffalo. You've seen that, right? And all those, all those you know, nature shows that we watched and the mutual of Omaha with the guy in a helicopter staring down and poor Jim is down on the ground having to deal with all the problems, right? There's this pack of wolves and they're coming down. Do the wolves go after the strong ones? Do the wolves go after the mature ones? No. What do the wolves go after? They go after the sick. They go after the broken. They go after the young, the immature. They're the easy prey. See, that's Satan. Satan garners his attacks while we're in the hard times of our lives. When we're down, he tries to get us to get even more damaged by offering us temptations. But now listen to the verses that follow, verses 10 and 11 of 1 Peter 5. It says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you by his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. 
To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, the God of all grace, the God who has called you to his eternal glory, he himself, he himself will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you because our God has complete dominion over everything and anything forever and ever. Here's the truth. When life throws its worth, its worst at you, God will give his best to you. When life has thrown its worst at you, God will give his best to you. So in those hard times, when temptations invariably will come, when everything around us seems to be dragging us down, we need to look to God, the God of all grace, the God who loves us so much to call us into his eternal glory, the God of restoration and strength. We need to keep our eyes focused on him. That's exactly what Joseph did in our story. When confronted with an opportunity to sin, his focus was on God. Every one of us in this room should have 1 Corinthians 10.13 memorized. 1 Corinthians 10.13. If you don't know, if you don't have 1 Corinthians 10.13, if you haven't written anything down yet, write down on your notes, memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13. It was a verse that was given to me when I was young in my faith to memorize. It's a critically important verse to understand God's sustaining grace in the midst of dealing with the temptations in our lives. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with that temptation, He will also provide that way of escape that you will be able to bear up under it. 1 Corinthians 13 is a verse of great hope. Because it's a verse about God's faithfulness to us. You see, when we're tempted, we are not tempted beyond our ability to respond to that temptation in a godly way. Even in the midst of the hardest times in our life, when we are tempted, we're not tempted beyond our ability to respond in a godly way. Why? Because we're super Christians? And we can handle all things? No. Because God is Faithful. That's what the verse says. God is the one providing the way of escape. God is the one providing the way out. God is the one giving us the sustaining grace. That doesn't mean that choosing God's way is easy. God does magically make the temptation disappear, right? No, the verse says that he will give us what we need to endure the temptation, to bear up under the temptation. Listen to this powerful paraphrase of uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, but remember this, that wrong desires that come into your life aren't anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before you. And no temptation is irresistible. You can trust God to keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. For he has promised this and he will do what he says. He will show you how to escape temptation's power so that you can bear up patiently against it. God will give you his sustaining grace in the midst of your life's challenges to stay true to him in his faithfulness to you. He will help you stay faithful to him. God in his timing through the famine brought Joseph and his brothers back together. You should take time to read the rest of the story there in Genesis if you have the time today. Well, the, the, the story ends in chapter 50 with the death of the father Jacob. 
And now the, the brothers are nervous. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down to him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Listen to these words. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Perhaps your difficulty, trial in life, perhaps this evil that has come against you, perhaps this trial, this temptation that you are facing seems only like bad and heartache can come from it. But God can take what is meant for evil. God can take what is meant for evil. You know what's coming next, right? God can take what is meant for evil and turn it around for the good. He can bring true healing and a strengthening and a pleading of our faith. When life has thrown its worst at you, God will give his best to you. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Because what if blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this day, we come before you. Real people. We have real struggles. We have difficult circumstances in our life. Trials and temptations that often hound us and pull us down. Satan that's trying to take advantage of these opportunities to make our lives even worse. Lord, we pray now, in these times, in these moments, that we will see that though this world and though others might have meant it for evil, that you can bring about good in the midst of our difficulties. We believe it. We pledge ourselves to the God that does this. The God of reconciliation and hope and and restoration. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the love and the purpose and the hope that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.